This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hello listeners and welcome to a very special episode of The Enemy Within. This is Coronation Cast, Contra's alternative coronation coverage. My name's Pete Romand and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Foley. James, how are you doing? Feeling very patriotic, Pete. Are you ready to uh, swear your oath of allegiance in front of the television? I genuinely cannot get excited about this coronation one way or the other, but I'm going to try my best to pretend to be excitable about the whole thing for the sake of the entertainment value of the podcast. The monarchy is, if nothing else, entertaining because of the weirdness, the pomposity and the general freakiness. So hopefully, listeners, will be able to convey some of that to you today. So, James... I have, being based in the United States, managed to escape some of the more odious elements of the coverage. What's it been like living in the UK in the build-up to the coronation? Quite frankly, I haven't noticed anything about it at all. And I live in a particular bubble. I live in Scotland. Maybe I live in a middle-class area of Scotland. I don't think it's any different in a working-class area in Scotland or indeed in many other working-class parts of the UK, though. So I personally have not experienced any fervour at all. I just don't think that it's had any impact on everyday life at all in Glasgow. Because I haven't really had it shoved in my face, I haven't really got angry about it yet. It just seems vaguely comical so far, insofar as I've had any experience of it whatsoever. Perhaps your experience isn't that unusual in the sense that I remember that there was almost an outcry at the last Jubilee when there were either no or a very limited number of celebrations planned in Glasgow and in Scotland. This time round, it just kind of seems par for the course that everyone expected there just to be no celebration, really, in Scotland, outside of a few small areas. Maybe private celebrations in one's home, toasting a glass of sherry to the new king or whatever, but no street parties, nothing like that. It does seem like there's no active support for this in Scotland, really. I don't think it's just Scotland either, if I'm being absolutely honest, right? I mean, compare it to, for instance, the death of the Queen. Clearly around that, there was a massive ruling class operation of national unity that was going on. And you really could get cancelled if you made the wrong comment. Remembering, of course, that cancel culture, if it's to be in any way a serious concept, is as much administered by the right as it is by the left. And certainly that sort of royal occasion is precisely where you do feel the full force of that. And thus, even the Scottish Green Party, supposedly these great Republicans, were getting all bleary-eyed about the visits of Queen Elizabeth to the Scottish Parliament and all that sort of jazz, right? Because you didn't want to get cancelled. But it doesn't feel to me like around this whole thing, there's much of an operation in place. I kind of feel like there's maybe a feeling around Charles that he's 
a bit of a Humza Yusuf figure. Vaguely comical, <laughs> vaguely sort of Mr. Bean-esque. And he's not going to be there for very long, so nobody's really getting very excited. As far as I can tell, that's the general vibe that's going on. The ruling elite are certainly not going out of their way to punish those who don't give a shit, or even those who, like Bonnie Prince Bob, are calling them all paedophiles or anything like that. I don't feel that sense of a massive operation around this whatsoever. But maybe I'm reading the ruling elites of Britain wrong, but I just don't feel like they care very much and are very much invested in it. And I don't feel like, you know, even your reactionary elements seem to be that much invested in it either. So, James, I, believe it or not, as research for this podcast, was listening to the Vanity Fair podcast on the coronation earlier this week. And it was awful, but also kind of informative in the sense that I tell you what, liberal America is certainly taking this coronation seriously, and they certainly take King Charles seriously. Well, they think he does all these nice liberal things around the world. You're kidding me, oh. And they're obsessed with the spectacle of it, of course. I think one of the reasons that they are so interested in it, part of it is just a celebrity gossip angle, right? They treat it like our version of the Kardashians. And so they spent a lot of time discussing the fact that Meghan Markle isn't attending. And Harry, who said he's only coming in for a quick stop. So how much will he actually attend? And how important it is that he's actually there for the coronation? And will he be at all the royal dinners? Charles has said there's going to be a place set for him at all the celebrations. But will he attend all of them? It's like they're trying to build this sort of celebrity intrigue around the whole thing. Well, this is the interesting thing about it, though, for you Americans, right? In Britain, of course, we have a publicly funded media and you have a capitalist media, you have Fox News, CNN, et cetera, et cetera. And similarly, in America, you have private capitalist celebrities. And here we have publicly funded celebrities that are presented for the world. And uh, maybe this is the, you know, the socialist element of the celebrity decadence of the, uh, of the British system. So basically, we've nationalized celebrity culture. Yeah, that's what we've done, yeah. Although some of them have got sick of the national the nationalization, of course, and have privatized themselves to California in the case of Harry uh, <laughs> and Megan. Yeah, it's sort of in the form of a public-private partnership because we don't know how much money they're still getting from Britain. I yes. do want to take one issue, James. I don't know if I want to be lumped in with you Americans. I call you you Americans, yes. I'm going to have to lodge formal protest at that one. Pete says that, but he's wearing a beer hat right now and truck nut. <laughs> listeners, I told James about truck nuts a while ago. And listeners, if you don't know what they are, Google them. This is a piece of American culture that I was shocked by when I got here, but it's yeah. kind of amazing in its own right. We have golden carriages and you have truck nuts. And if you had golden carriages, you'd have truck nuts on them. This is the difference between our cultures. The other thing that Vanity Fair were very interested in was the potential threats that the monarchy faces because Charles is supposedly not as popular as the Queen was. Now, certainly opinion polling prior to the Queen's death showed that Charles was far less popular than the Queen. His popularity ratings as soon as the Queen died did jump up a lot. Mm. But there was this sense that the crisis around Harry and Meghan and potentially Charles's unpopularity, this could prove really serious for the royal family. In my opinion, it doesn't matter in the slightest. 
there's no serious opposition to the monarchy. There is just a passive, I don't care attitude. And that's not very threatening. The reality is that none of the major political parties are ever going to oppose the monarchy. And therefore, there's not actually any political mechanism by which their authority could be challenged. What you're probably going to see is just a sort of like slow, long-term grinding attrition um, over time of support. Now, James, there's been some commentary on social media and elsewhere about some of the people attending the coronation, including the likes of Nick Cave. What do you think of this? Well, Nick Cave's line on this is interesting, right? Because he says, this is the weirdest event in basically the world. And he is someone who has made, you know, a lifetime's career out of charting the extremes of weirdness and oddness and abject behavior and so on. So why the fuck wouldn't he be there? And, you know, I can kind of see his point around that. And certainly I don't really understand why so many people are getting their knickers on the twist just because someone who makes music that they like, and I like Nick Cave, I must say as well, is attending this event. Even if it is the case that his whole excuse about the abjectness and weirdness and so on of the royal family is just an excuse for the fact that he fancies hanging out with the establishment, I've never had the view that I really expect all the people I like in music, film, art, and areas of cultural life to fulfill a certain set of performative politics. To be honest, rather than expecting that everyone we like in the artistic sphere should conform to a sort of blanket left liberalism, as we tend to do nowadays, that includes a sort of soft anti-monarchism, rather than do that, why don't we just have people honestly express their political views, differentiate the things that we like in culture from our politics, and vice versa? And let's have some people with some actually serious socialist and Marxist analysis, albeit as a small minority in the artistic sphere, and also a range of conservatives as well. I'd much prefer that to the situation we now have, where we get really angry at people who don't have this boring, amorphous, left-liberal or centre-left liberal performative politics that they're expected to do. So if Nick Cave wants to do this because he is a conservative, fine, I will continue to listen to his music, and I don't really much care that he doesn't have the quote-unquote right political perspective about it whatsoever. But Nick Cave's right about one thing. It's weird, it's creepy, it's abject, it's all the things that he tended to chart in his musical career, so maybe he belongs there. The thing is, James, I've got a lot of sympathy for someone that goes to witness weirdness. As people who've been around the left long enough, at some point, you have to just revel in the weirdness of humanity. What you're saying is that Nick Cave should be attending Trotskyist events and various activist things on the left because they are just as weird and creepy as the monarchy. Yeah. Well, they are, but they don't have the weird glamour that is combined with the abject, weird and creepy elements of the monarchy, you know, like the sort of golden carriages and the livery and all the expensive frills that go together with the creepy elements and the sort of weirdly bourgeois element, of course, also that the British monarchy always has. Uh, they're always, you know, they always feel like they're going to try and sell you something because they're trying to sell shit to the Americans all the time, you know, um, and have been doing that 
basically for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I do think that Nick should balance out his exploration of weirdness across the board and perhaps should go for some of the less luxury elements of weird humanity, like a trot meeting. I just think we should have a more diverse cultural scene, right? And we should have people who enjoy the creepy, abject elements of the royal family and maybe they have a conservative politics. There is such a clear disjuncture where in the year 2023, we have these archaic rituals being performed that look so out of date with the contemporary world. And yet, in some respects, that is what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like a piece of ancient history transported into today to give the monarchy and to give the aristocratic form of the class system this sense of endurance as if it has always been there and always will be there. This is something that Tom Nairn wrote about in his book, The Enchanted Class. And if anyone's interested in a serious analysis of the monarchy and its role in Britain in terms of British nationalism, you need to read The Enchanted Class by Tom Nairn. It's probably the most serious intellectual engagement with the crown and what it means. Mm. And what Nairn says is that British democracy doesn't flow directly from the concept of popular sovereignty, but rather from the crown. And this blocks the emergence of movements for popular sovereignty because Britain had an incomplete bourgeois revolution. Practically anything that claims to be ancient and archaic and all those sorts of things is going to be a product of the mid to late 19th century invention of tradition. And the whole spectacle that we are seeing over the next day or two with the monarchy, the whole procession, is predictably enough a product of that period of history as well. And the crisis of British monarchism that ensued around the period of Queen Victoria. And it's obviously clear that throughout the process of capitalist modernity, the British royal family has undergone numerous makeovers in order to present a sort of archaic front that is designed precisely in order to make them more saleable to the universe of capitalist modernity. Most recently, of course, you know, with the sort of celebrity-type makeover of the royals that happened in the 1980s with Charles and Diana. And then, of course, the woke makeover of royalty that happened with Meghan and Harry that we might well come on to. And the reaction to it. And the whole reaction to it. And both of them, of course, as with any of these types of debates, are interconnected with one another and shouldn't be seen as real ideological opposites. But yeah, with Tom there, of course there are elements of truth to the idea of this British exceptionalism, the weird elements of Britain lacking a tradition of popular sovereignty that does mean we have to resort to this type of um, faux symbolism in order to cover up for the absence of a cohesive national identity, particularly after the decline of empire and so on. There's obviously an element of truth to all those types of things. Obviously, there's also an element of truth to the opposite critique, which says that the 80% or so of the world states that are republics have not really achieved any type of popular sovereignty, uh, most often that is worthy of the name. And to try and pretend that they have done is probably some sort of abject joke in and of itself. So 
while of course we should condemn the stupidity the uh, spectatorship cult the celebrity and bourgeois elements of the contemporary royal family manifesting as some sort of ancient monarchism or aristocracy and so on of course we should say it's a national embarrassment that we have to go through all of those different things and make a spectacle of ourselves quite literally in front of the world but um having said that the idea that it would be anything other than you know enjoyable to remove ourselves of these cretins we would become another capitalist state in a universe of capitalist states, many of which describe themselves as republics, none of whom have lived up to any sort of ideal of republicanism in any serious way. The monarchy is disgusting, in my opinion, primarily because it is just a constant in-your-face reminder of the way in which class politics and class deference and the old aristocratic order hasn't properly broken. But at the same time, if we elect a president, do we really think that anything would be different? I would think of it in a slightly different way, right? I mean, I think like the whole British monarchy and also Eton, Oxbridge, the Billingdon Club, that sort of pseudo-aristocracy, all those things that pass under the banner of the British class system. A system of essentially status hierarchies and modes of deference and behaviour and all those sorts of things. The very fact that we have the appearance of all those things is meaningful is a barrier to serious class analysis and materialist class analysis in the Marxist tradition, which is going to centre on the real relationships of exploitation in the capitalist system, which quite frankly, the royal family, though they, of course, are capitalists in themselves and landowners and all these other things, but the fact of them and the appearance that they make of a class-based order is kind of a, de a deflection from the way that capitalism actually works in Britain or beyond. And that's really why I find irritating about it more than anything else, is the illusion that if we somehow got rid of Billingdon, the royal family, and Eton, that we would have a class structure in Britain, because of course we would do. That's a very interesting point, James. I think that one thing we can say, though, in relation to the lack of interest and the relative unpopularity of Charles, is that to the extent that the monarchy are the primary symbol of British nationalism, mm. their power to cohere British nationalism symbolically perhaps has declined. Because, and this is going back to Tom Nairn, one of the points that he makes, what's interesting about the United Kingdom is that there are very few symbols that cohere Britishness. There are lots of things that we identify with what it means to be Scottish and Scottish identity, Welsh and Welsh identity, and there are lots of symbols of Englishness, but there are very few symbols of Britishness now that the empire is gone does this in any way pose a challenge for the establishment's ability to cohere a sense of Britishness and pride in Britishness? Possibly to a limited extent. I mean, there is a, probably an element of truth in the fact that through the period of the end of empire and through the various difficulties that Britain had after that, the Renaissance so-called of Thatcherism, not that it was much of a Renaissance in Scotland, and of New Labourism, 
And then, of course, through the subsequent crisis years, again, of austerity, Brexit, etc., etc., there was an element of imagined continuity represented by Queen Elizabeth. For those that cared to notice, clearly, symbolically, yes, you can point to the relevance of that factor. The truth is, though, that the most serious and violent crises of the British state happened recently under the watch of Queen Elizabeth, and nobody gave Queen Elizabeth's role in any of that process that went on around Brexit and its aftermath. The problems that the British state, the British ruling elite, the British capitalist elite face are too serious and grave nowadays, I think, for the fact of who is formerly the head of state under the banner of monarchy to make very much difference either way. That's why I don't think the British elite seems to give much of a damn either way whether the public is enthused at all at the ceremonial aspect of the coronation of King Charles. Nobody is expecting there to be new hope injected into the nation by King Charles. Maybe if it was a slightly younger monarch, such as William, who I think is much more deplorable in many ways than King Charles. Maybe if it was such a figure, there would be some sort of like pseudo-pretense of optimism. So James, why do you think that William is more deplorable? Apparently he just goes around shouting various servants and so on all the time. And he's a real rude bastard. I mean, this might be scurrilous rumour coming from the royalist gossips and so on. Um, you never know. He did on the plus side batter Prince Harry, which was kind of funny. Like, um, <laughs> uh, I kind of liked it when he did that. I also, I mean, what is going on with Princess Kate? You know what I mean? Like, at least, I think the thing you can say about Camilla, right, is her and Charles, first of all, they obviously weirdly fancy each other. And second of all, they're so weird and unfanciable, it's kind of curious to watch the whole thing, right? (laughs) But, like, the complete lack of any sexual energy that exists between Prince William and Princess Kate, I mean, who is described rather rudely by Hilary Mantel as a plastic princess built to breed is in and of itself interesting. I find them just awful, just truly terrible. And so awful, the two of them, that they almost make me sympathetic towards Harry and Meghan. And then I resent them even more because, you know, why would I have any sympathy with those two Netflix corporate California grifters? I have no sympathy with them. The very fact that Prince William and Kate are so dreadful as human beings that they make me have sympathy with Harry and Meghan is another reason that I have to resent them. Meghan and Harry's shtick is honestly kind of amazing in the sense that all they seem to do is say, please give us privacy, please leave us alone. We want the media to leave us alone. And to do that, they go to the media, give interviews. Harry writes an autobiography yeah. uh, spelling out all the things that he feels are personal insults to himself and Megan. And I'm sure that they were badly treated or whatever. But if you want privacy, just shut the fuck up and go and live your rich life in California. They could have lived a very you know wealthy, well-off life. But then they're like, oh yeah, we're going to sign five deals with Netflix. Four of which I think got cancelled because they were rubbish. And yeah, he produced uh, this autobiography in which he tried to do in various members of his family 
by making various accusations against him, some of which were mildly funny, you know, like him getting beaten up, some of which are just like, why is he even relaying this? It just makes him look silly. And we haven't even talked about Prince Andrew yet, of course. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I was I was just about to say, we're spending all this time on uh, these people, but we've not got to the worst yet. Well, I, you know, I, I think Prince Andrew's kind of a sympathetic woke figure in many ways, you know. I mean, it's, it's not often said, but the man suffered a serious trauma in the Falklands, and it's not very well known, but he actually did suffer a trauma, which meant that he can't sway, which means that he's actually not a, not a mammalian at all. I mean, you know, there are, humans have more sweat glands than most mammals, but all mammalians have sweat glands. But unfortunately, Prince Andrew was so traumatized and has suffered such PTSD that he, in fact, was ejected from the mammalian family and was not able to sweat subsequently. So um, I think there's good reason why many people who are rather woke do sympathize with uh, with Prince Andrew. <laughs> well, um, that is an interesting take, James. I didn't expect you to take it there, but yeah, absolutely. Um Prince Andrew hasn't been invited to any of this, to the best of my knowledge, uh, not being a working royal. Is Fergie coming? I believe, yeah, Fergie will be there, I'm sure. I mean, the thing I like about Fergie is, I mean, she's actually got some entrepreneurial initiative, right, in fairness to her. I mean, does she not do budgie the little helicopter? <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I think she did. No, I think, I genuinely think if you go look this up, uh, she did invent Budgie the Little Helicopter, right? And as this did, brought more joy to people than any of the other royals put together. So um, I I forgot that Budgie the Little Helicopter existed, I must admit. Yeah. But the, you're really taking me back to my childhood now. Uh, interesting family, you know. I mean, you can see why Americans just, you know, it, it's got that element of the Kardashians that are not physically attractive or something, you know what I mean? It's like the Kardashians, but they're all inbred freaks. Yeah. I'm starting yeah. to see why Nick Cave wants to go, to be honest. Of course. I see for an outsider, right, if you don't have to have these people actually speaking for and representing you symbolically, right? Although, albeit, I know Australia, whatever, right? But, you know, really they're representing Britain, right? So we can get our knickers on a twist about it and say, why do these inbred pedophile, nepotistic freaks have to represent us, whatever, right? Okay, fair enough. But see, if you're an outsider, you can see why there's an element of the oddness, the pageantry, the freak element, which must have a certain draw. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter, at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. So, James, given the cast of characters that we've just gone through, it's a little surprising that republicanism, political opposition to the monarchy, is not exactly strong right now. What is happening in relation to opposition to the coronation and to the monarchy in general? Well, on the one hand, you've got Sinn Féin, who are just sort of blandly turning up and 
doing their whole we are part of the modern world shtick, which means turning up and celebrating the lizard rulers of the United Kingdom, apparently. That's how you modernize the appeal of Irish nationalism. So there you go. You've got that sort of republicanism, that official republicanism. Obviously, you've got your sort of bland corporate guardian reading republicanism that is sort of fatalistic and is never going anywhere that's kind of always existed. Curiously, you've got Alex Salmond, who has always been seen as the most monarchist of Scottish nationalists, who apparently for what must be entirely opportunistic purposes is turning out to the all-under-one-banner demonstration in Scotland rather than going to the coronation itself. Fair play to old Salmon for that. He had this bizarre suggestion that Hamza Yousaf should have got like a whole procession of police officers or something like that to stop the stone of destiny from being taken from Scotland so that they could prevent the whole thing taking place until Scotland gets its right to a referendum. He thinks that would have been brilliant publicity given how much publicity of a negative variety Hamza Yousaf has had recently. I'm not sure that would have really been the cleverest of moves. Finally, there is the, you know, Calton Hill group of people who are having some tiny demonstration in Edinburgh that seems to be largely composed of people who love the leadership of the SNP and all of its failings, who love the European Union and who basically, as far as I can see, are defending no real sense of republicanism in any sense that I would recognise as part of a system of citizen initiative mass mobilisation and popular sovereignty. And really, to be honest, they're no different from the bland Guardian-reading republicanism that prevailed in the 1990s in my youth and made republicanism so unattractive for many people in the United Kingdom for so many decades. So why is republicanism so shit today? I don't know. I mean, I think it's partly an accumulation of bad politics that has surrounded it based on this kind of illusion that if you could only get rid of the archaic British class structure and replace it with a modernised written constitution and all these types of things, that you would somehow solve the intrinsic problems of Britishness. To me, what annoys me about that is that it seems like it's the absolute fundamental illusion, is that there's something meaningful about all these archaic models of presentation. When in fact, I'm sure if you go rid of them, we would still have a class-riddled capitalistic society that would be at best something like France, but of course without the revolutionary traditions of France anyway, so maybe a sort of model United States of America or something like that. I also think, though, it's just the fact that, you know, when people don't care about the monarchy, right, when they are disaffected, when they don't think it matters, Obviously, I disagree up to a point because I think this type of spectatorship politics at the top level of the state is some kind of barrier to better order of popular sovereignty and to a better approach to Republican politics and so on and so forth. But when people have that sense that it doesn't matter, it's not entirely a delusion, if you see what I mean, right? Because sometimes we just think that the people are all deluded and living in the matrix and deluded by false consciousness that comes from the new left traditions of Marxism and from various liberal critiques and so on. But I just think that's kind of insulting to the intelligence of the mass of the people. 
there are reasons that they don't really give a shit, which I think are founded in their own material existence, where they think, look, it's all silly, but who gives a shit, right? Would it really change anything if we were to get rid of them? And it's also a rational response in the sense that even if taking aside the ability to even get rid of them, the individual has a cost-benefit analysis, if you like, yeah. which is, okay, what if I spend lots of time caring about this and doing something about it? What's my own individual effort actually ever going to achieve? Yeah. Because none of the political parties or political movements are ever going to do anything about this. So what's the point of me spending my time doing anything about it? I'd be better spent using that time on something more productive, like watching Netflix. The problem with watching Netflix is you'll probably get a show that's made by Meghan and Harry, right? But, you know, you kind of see what... They, you may, maybe you can see what they mean by that, right? I mean, leftists have this thing that they do, right, which I think is fundamentally false and performative, and we should be conscious of the fact that they're doing it because we all get into the trap of doing it, where they see something bad and they think that the answer is a mass movement. At the best of times, we have maybe one or two mass movements underway in the United Kingdom or any other national system politics, right? So the answer to every single thing that's awful in our society can't always be a mass movement. You've got to have some sense of strategic priorities. The fact that all this is going on means that we should be intellectually conscious of it and intellectually conscious of the fact that you know the whole thing insults our intelligence, that it disguises and masks the fundamental nature of the state, that is symbolic of many things in British history that we would rather were not part of British history and that we should be more conscious of from the empire to the class system and so on and so forth, right? All of those things are true. But the idea that you're just going to be able to magic up a mass movement of ordinary people as opposed to concerned intellectuals who've got too much time on their hands, you've got to be more serious about what that could actually look like and why people would invest their time in such an enterprise. We're currently undergoing an extraordinary crisis of the capitalist system which well transcends the United Kingdom. I will add into that that we have a war in Ukraine that is going absolutely nowhere and is turning into a dreadful war of attrition and is causing all sorts of economic damage worldwide. Now, under those circumstances, I'm forgetting climate change, right? But, you know, there's three serious things that I've just mentioned. Given that we can't even raise a mass movement around any of those issues, Albeit that the monarchy insults our intelligence, albeit that it is representative of some god-awful aspects of Britishness, is the answer going to be that the mass of the public should mobilise their time and their effort and their energy, that they can't mobilise around the fact that we're all losing tons of money from the economic crisis, that they can't mobilise behind the god-awful war that is going on, or climate change, or even for that matter Scottish independence, that they should mobilise and spend their time trying to get rid of Charles. You can understand maybe, when we put it like that, why the mass of the people are not rising to their feet in any way to, you know, proclaim the British Republic under these circumstances. That doesn't mean to say that I apologise for the craven monarchism of so much of centre-left politics and even of the bloody Lorna Slater from the Green Party who was all teary-eyed about Queen Elizabeth, etc., etc., right? I think one should have an intellectual backbone about politics enough to see that what the UK monarchy represents is god-awful. Is the answer a mass movement? Of course it isn't. 
because constructing one is going to be almost impossible. It's worth saying, though, that it does strike me as pretty disgraceful that the people who do want to protest the coronation, as is their democratic right, have been told by the police that the police will not look kindly on disruption. Having Republican politics is not a crime, and it is a democratic right to be able to express that political opinion when the British state is spending this much money on it. So it's worth just saying that I do commend all those people who are protesting. Well, I mean, if if they want to protest, of course, and of course I'm not in any way in favour of restrictions on freedom of speech, restrictions on protest, etc., etc., right? Having said that, that doesn't sound like the most heavy-handed way of putting that in any respect whatsoever. We won't look kindly on that young man. King Charles is going to be there. Don't want to be embarrassing him. Um, You know, it it doesn't sound like North Korea. The subtext does sound like you get too rowdy, you could get arrested. If you want to have a punk rock protest against the monarchy, whether on a sort of sex pistols type basis or whether you just enjoy calling them nonces like Bonnie Prince Bob and his recent single, whatever it is, right? If you want to have a punk rock aspect to things, you've got to be willing to have a little bit of getting arrested, right? I mean, to be honest, if you're not getting arrested and you're trying to do a protest around it, maybe you're doing something wrong. So, James, you've critiqued actually existing republicanism. What should republicanism look like? What does your republicanism look like? I think republicanism implies a certain distinct take on what socialism is, which you can see in people like uh, James Connolly. Essentially, it's the idea of civic citizen responsibility being the foundation of the state. And that's an idea that you could even trace to the sort of military mobilization of the citizenry in ancient Rome and so on, and the self-arming of the citizenry and all these other things, right? It implies a different sense of citizenship than the sort of passive spectacle, whether of monarchism or of the idea that socialism is just going to be a sort of big, expansive welfare state where things are doled out towards you. Um, I, you know, so republicanism to me is an idea of responsibility and citizen mobilization centered around the state. And of course, you mentioned the term popular sovereignty as being foundational to that. I think there's a relevant discussion you can uh, have about what socialism looks like under those circumstances and how the state might function under socialism. That's not just a fantasy of the state springing spontaneously from workplaces or the state withering away somehow and there being no force of public order in life and everything just emerging spontaneously. In lieu of either of those more utopian elements, I think a meaningful discussion about republicanism should form part of what it is that we consider to be the debate on socialism uh, very much. Well, this has been a weird podcast, but it's been fun to chat to you about it. <laughs> well, well, good long editing, that nonsense. We're going to have a different outro today. To celebrate the spirit of punk rock protest against the coronation, this is Guardy Lou by Gutterblood and Bonnie Prince Bob, who got a couple of mentions on the pod today. I'd encourage you all to support local artists. Go out and buy the song. Halt! Who goes there? It's me. Who's me? Bonnie Prince Bob. What do you want? I want to speak to the king. The king? What have you to say to the king? 
Luciferian Tudor winds or scum Bonnet ruler, royal fool, another inbred son of the Germanic Nazi dynasty Spunked from a lizard sack Imperial rape and infamy wrapped in a union jack Your father was a paedophile, your brother is a nonce When Michael Fagan shagged your mind, shagged on more than once A molly-collied imbecile festooned in golden shape When we drag you to the guillotine, the world will be alright Twas on a Monday morning, right early in the year when Charlie came into our town, the crowds began to jeer. Charlie, you're my darling, my darling, my darling. Charlie, you're my darling, what do you have to fear? We rushed the royal entourage, the king began to shout. We smashed the carriage windows in and dragged the bastard out. Charlie, you're my darling, my darling, my darling. Charlie, you're my darling, what do you have to fear? Hanoverian, Luciferian, to the winds of scum. Born a ruler, royal fool, another inbred son of the Germanic Nazi dynasty. Spoke from a lizard sack, imperial rape and infamy wrapped in a union jack. Summer holds with Savile in your weekends with Wolf Harris Diana rode an Arab so you bumped her off in Paris They say you drink the blood of Ailes or wouldn't you be surprised Your richest comfy workers toil and that's why you're despised That's why you're fucking despised, Charlie Living off the fat of land while the people sleep Shake the middle woods. I'm only calling them the seal fist in the golden shape when we drag you to the guillotine. The world.